But if I know not the distinction between our working and the power of God, I know not God himself. And if I know not God, I cannot worship him, praise him, give him thanks, nor serve him. For I shall not know how much I ought to ascribe unto myself and how much unto God. It is necessary, therefore, to hold the most certain distinction between the power of God and our power, the working of God and our working, if we would live in his fear. Hence, you see, this point forms another part of the whole sum of Christianity, on which depends and in which is at stake the knowledge of ourselves and the knowledge and glory of God. Wherefore, friend Erasmus, your calling the knowledge of this point irreligious, curious, and vain is not to be born in you. We owe much to you, but we owe all to the fear of God. Nay, you yourself see that all our good is to be ascribed unto God, and you assert that in your form of Christianity. And in asserting this, you certainly at the same time assert also that the mercy of God alone does all things, and that our own will does nothing, but is rather acted upon. And so it must be, otherwise the whole is not ascribed unto God. And yet immediately afterwards you say that to assert these things and to know them is irreligious, impious, and vain. But at this rate of mind, which is unstable in itself, and unsettled and inexperienced in the things of godliness, cannot but talk. Section 8. Another part of the sum of Christianity is to know whether God foreknows anything by contingency or whether we do all things from necessity. This part also you make to be irreligious, curious, and vain, as all the wicked do. The devils and the damned also make it detestable and execrable. And you show your wisdom in keeping yourself clear from such questions wherever you can do it. But however, you are but a very poor rhetorician and theologian if you pretend to speak of free will without these essential parts of it. I will therefore act as a whetstone, and though no rhetorician myself will tell a feigned rhetorician what he ought to do, if then Quintilian purposing to write an oratory should say, in my judgment, all that superfluous nonsense about invention, arrangement, elocution, memory, pronunciation, need not be mentioned. It is enough to know that oratory is the art of speaking well. Would you not laugh at such a writer? But you act exactly like this. For pretending to write on free will, you first throw aside and cast away the grand substance and all the parts of the subject on which you undertake to write. Whereas it is impossible that you should know what free will is unless you know what the human will does and what God does or foreknows. Do not your rhetoricians teach that he who undertakes to speak upon any subject ought first to show whether the thing exists and then what it is what its parts are, what is contrary to it, connected with it, and like unto it, etc. But you rob that miserable subject in itself, free will, of all these things, and define no one question concerning it except this first, whether it exists, and even this with such arguments as we shall presently see. And so worthless a book on free will I never saw, excepting the elegance of the language. The sophists, in reality, at least argue upon this point better than you, though those of them who have attempted the subject of free will are no rhetoricians. 
for they define all the questions connected with it, whether it exists, what it does, and how it stands with reference to, etc., although they do not affect what they attempt. In this book, therefore, I will push you and the sophists together until you shall define to me the power of free will and what it can do. And I hope I shall so push you, Christ willing, as to make you heartily repent that you ever published your diatribe. The Sovereignty of God, Section 9. This, therefore, is also essentially necessary and wholesome for Christians to know that God foreknows nothing by contingency, but that he foresees, purposes, and does all things according to his immutable, eternal, and infallible will. By this thunderbolt, free will is thrown prostrate and utterly dashed to pieces. Those, therefore, who would assert free will must either deny this thunderbolt or pretend not to see it or push it from them. But, however, before I establish this point by any arguments of my own and by the authority of Scripture, I will first set it forth in your own words. Are you not, then, the person, friend Erasmus, who just now asserted that God is by nature just and by nature most merciful? If this be true, does it not follow that he is immutably just and merciful? That as his nature is not changed to all eternity, so neither his justice nor his mercy? And what is said concerning his justice and his mercy must be said also concerning his knowledge, his wisdom, his goodness, his will, and his other attributes. If therefore these things are asserted religiously, piously and wholesomely concerning God as you say yourself what has come to you that contrary to your own self you now assert that it is irreligious curious and vain to say that God foreknows of necessity you openly declare that the immutable will of God is to be known but you forbid the knowledge of his immutable prescience do you believe that he foreknows against his will or that he wills in ignorance if then he foreknows, willing, is willing is eternal and immovable, because his nature is so. And if he wills, foreknowing, his knowledge is eternal and immovable, because his nature is so. From which it follows unalterably that all things which we do, although they may appear to us to be done mutably and contingently, and even may be done thus contingently by us, are yet in reality done necessarily and immutably with respect to the will of God. For the will of God is effective and cannot be hindered, because the very power of God is natural to him, and his wisdom is such that he cannot be deceived. And as his will cannot be hindered, the work itself cannot be hindered from being done in the place, at the time, in the measure, and by whom he foresees and wills. If the will of God were such that when the work was done, the work remained but the will ceased, as is the case with the will of men which when the house is built which they wish to build ceases to will as though it ended by death then indeed it might be said that things are done by contingency and mutability but here the case is the contrary the work ceases and the will remains so far is it from possibility that the doing of the work or its remaining can be said to be from contingency or mutability but that we may not be deceived in terms. Being done by contingency does not in the Latin language signify that the work itself which is done is contingent, 
but that it is done according to a contingent or mutable will, such a will as is not to be found in God. Moreover, a work cannot be called contingent unless it be done by us unawares, by contingency, and as it were, by chance, that is, by our will or hand catching at it as presented by chance, we thinking nothing of it, nor willing anything about it before. Section 10. I could wish indeed that we were furnished with some better term for this discussion than this commonly used term, necessity, which cannot rightly be used either with reference to the human will or the divine. It is of a signification too harsh and ill-suited for this subject, forcing upon the mind an idea of compulsion and that which is altogether contrary to will, whereas the subject which we are discussing does not require such an idea. For will, whether divine or human, does what it does, be it good or evil, not by any compulsion, but by mere willingness or desire, as it were, totally free. The will of God, nevertheless, which rules over our mutable will, is immutable and infallible. As Boethius sings, Immovable thyself, thou movement givest to all. And our own will, especially our corrupt will, cannot of itself do good. Therefore, where the term fails to express the idea required, the understanding of the reader must make up the deficiency, knowing what is wished to be expressed, the immutable will of God and the impotency of our depraved will, or, as some have expressed it, the necessity of immutability, though neither is that sufficiently grammatical or sufficiently theological. Upon this point, the sophists have now labored hard for many years and being at last conquered have been compelled to retreat. All things take place from the necessity of the consequence, they say, but not from the necessity of the thing consequent. What nothingness this amounts to, I will not take the trouble to show. By the necessity of the consequence, to give a general idea of it, they mean this. If God wills anything, that same thing must, of necessity, be done. But it is not necessary that the thing done should be necessary. For God alone is necessary. All other things cannot be so, if it is God that wills. Therefore, they say, the action of God is necessary where he wills, but the act itself is not necessary. That is, they mean, it has not essential necessity. But what do they affect by this playing upon words? Only this, that the act itself is not necessary, that is, it has not essential necessity. This is no more than saying the act is not God himself. This nevertheless remains certain, that if the action of God is necessary, or if there is a necessity of the consequence, everything takes place of necessity, how much soever the act be not necessary that is, be not God himself, or have not essential necessity. For if I be not made of necessity, it is of little moment with me, whether my existence and being be mutable or not, if, nevertheless, I, that contingent and mutable being, who am not the necessary God, am made. Wherefore, their ridiculous play upon words that all things take place from the necessity of the consequence, but not from the necessity of the thing consequent, amounts to nothing more than this. All things take place of necessity, but all the things that do take place are not God himself. But what need was there to tell us this? 
as though there were any fear of our asserting that the things done were God himself or possessed divine or necessary nature. This asserted truth, therefore, stands and remains invincible that all things take place according to the immutable will of God, which they call the necessity of the consequence. Nor is there here any obscurity or ambiguity. In Isaiah he said, My counsel shall stand, and my will shall be done. Isaiah 46.10 And what schoolboy does not understand the meaning of these expressions? Counsel, will, shall be done shall stand. Section 11. But why should these things be abstruse to us Christians so that it should be considered irreligious, curious, and vain to discuss and know them when heathen poets and the very commonality have them in their mouths in the most frequent use? How often does Virgil alone make mention of fate? All things stand fixed by law immutable. Again, fixed is the day of every man. Again, if the fates summon you. And again, if thou shalt break the binding chain of fate. All this poet aims at is to show that in the destruction of Troy and in the raising the Roman Empire, fate did more than all the devoted efforts of men. In a word, he makes even their immortal gods subject to fate. To this, even Jupiter and Juno must of necessity yield. Hence they made the three parsea immutable, implacable, and irrevocable in decree. Those men of wisdom knew that which the event itself with experience proves, that no man's own counsels ever succeeded, but that the event happened to all contrary to what they thought. Virgil's Hector says, Could Troy have stood by human arm, it should have stood by mine. Hence that common saying was on everyone's tongue, God's will be done. Again, if God will, we will do it. Again, such was the will of God. Such was the will of those above. Such was your will, says Virgil. Whence we may see that the knowledge of predestination and of the presence of God was no less left in the world than the notion of the divinity itself. And those who wished to appear wise went in their disputations so far that their hearts being darkened, they became fools. Romans 1, 21-22 And denied, or pretended not to know, those things which their poets and the commonality and even their own consciences held to be universally known, most certain and most true. Section 12 I observe further not only how true these things are, concerning which I shall speak more at large hereafter out of the scriptures, but also how religious, pious, and necessary it is to know them. For if these things be not known, there can be neither faith nor any worship of God. Nay, not to know them is to be in reality ignorant of God. With which ignorant salvation, it is well known, cannot consist for if you doubt or disdain to know that God foreknows and wills all things, not contingently, but necessarily and immutably, how can you believe confidently, trust to, and depend upon his promises? For when he promises, it is necessary that you should be certain that he knows, is able, and willing to perform what he promises. Otherwise, you will neither hold him true nor faithful, which is unbelief, 
the greatest of wickedness, and a denying of the Most High God. And how can you be certain and secure unless you are persuaded that he knows and wills certainly, infallibly, immutably, and necessarily, and will perform what he promises? Nor ought we to be certain only that God wills necessarily and immutably and will perform, but also to glory in the same, as Paul in Romans 3, 4. Let God be true, but every man a liar. And again, for the word of God is not without effect, Romans 9, 6. And in another place, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. 2 Timothy 2.19 And which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Titus 1.2 And he that cometh must believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of them that hope in him. Hebrews 11.6 If therefore we are taught and if we believe that we ought not to know the necessary prescience of God and the necessity of the things that are to take place Christian faith is utterly destroyed and the promises of God and the whole gospel entirely fall to the ground. For the greatest and only consolation of Christians in their adversities is the knowing that God lies not but does all things immutably and that his will cannot be resisted, changed, or hindered. Section 13 Do you now then only observe, friend Erasmus, to what that most moderate and most peace-loving theology of yours would lead us. You call us off and forbid our endeavoring to know the prescience of God and the necessity that lies on men and things and counsel us to leave such things and to avoid and disregard them. And in so doing, you at the same time teach us your rash sentiments that we should seek after an ignorance of God which comes upon us of its own accord and is engendered in us disregard faith, leave the promises of God, and account the consolations of the Spirit and the assurances of conscience nothing at all. Such counsel scarcely any epicure himself would give. Moreover, not content with this, you call him who should desire to know such things irreligious, curious, and vain, but him who should disregard them religious, pious, and sober. What else do these words imply than that Christians are irreligious, curious, and vain? And that Christianity is a thing of naught, vain, foolish, plainly impious? Here again, therefore, while you wish by all means to deter us from temerity, running, as fools always do, directly into the contrary, you teach nothing but the greatest temerity and piety and perdition. Do you not see, then, that in this part your book is so impious blasphemous and sacrilegious that its like is not anywhere to be found I do not as I have observed before speak of your heart nor can I think that you are so lost that from your heart you wish these things to be taught and practiced but I would show you what enormities that man must be compelled unknowingly to broach who undertakes to support a bad cause and moreover what it is to run against divine things and truths when in mere compliance with others and against our own conscience we assume a strange character and act upon a strange stage. It is neither a game nor a jest to undertake to teach the sacred truths and godliness. For it is very easy here to meet with that fall which James speaks of. He that offendeth in one point is guilty of all. James 
For when we begin to be in the least degree disposed to trifle and not to hold the sacred truths in due reverence, we are soon involved in impieties and overwhelmed with blasphemies. As it has happened to you here, Erasmus, may the Lord pardon and have mercy upon you. That the sophists have given birth to such numbers of reasoning questions upon these subjects and have intermingled with them many unprofitable things, many of which you mention, I know and confess as well as you. And I have inveighed against them much more than you have. But you act with imprudence and rashness when you liken the purity of the sacred truths under the profane and foolish questions of the impious and mingle and confound it with them. They have defiled the gold with dung and changed the good color. Lamentations 4.1, as Jeremiah saith. But the gold is not to be compared unto and cast away with the dung as you do it. The gold must be wrested from them and the pure scripture separated from their dregs and filth, which it has ever been my aim to do, that the divine truths may be looked upon in one light and the trifles of these men in another. But it ought not to be considered of any service to us that nothing has been effected by these questions, but their causing us to favor them less with the whole current of our approbation, if, nevertheless, we still desire to be wiser than we ought. The question with us is not how much the sophists have affected by their reasonings, but how we may become good men and Christians. Nor ought you to impute it to the Christian doctrine that the impious do evil. That is nothing to the purpose. You may speak of that somewhere else and spare your paper here. Section 14. Under your third head, you attempt to make us some of those very modest and quiet Epicureans with a different kind of advice indeed, but no better than that, with which the two forementioned particulars are brought forward. Some things, you say, are of that nature that, although they are true in themselves and might be known, yet it would not be prudent to prostitute them to the ears of everyone. Here again, according to your custom, you mingle and confound everything to bring the sacred things down to a level with the profane, without making any distinction whatever, again falling into the contempt of and doing an injury to God. As I have said before, those things which are either found in the sacred writings or may be proved by them are not only plain but wholesome and therefore may be, nay, ought to be, spread abroad, learnt, and known. So that your saying that they ought not to be prostituted to the ears of everyone is false, if that is, you speak of those things which are in the Scripture. But if you speak of any other things, they are nothing to me, and nothing to the purpose. You lose time and paper in saying anything about them. Moreover, you know that I agree not with the sophists in anything. You may therefore spare me and not bring me in at all as connected with their abuse of the truth. You had in this book of yours to speak against me. I know where the sophists are wrong, nor do I want you for my instructor, and they have been sufficiently inveighed against by me. This, therefore, I wish to be observed once for all, whenever you shall bring me in with the sophists and disparage my side of the subject by their madness. For you do me an injury, and that you know very well. Section 15. Now let us see your reasons for giving this advice. You think that although it may be true that God from his nature is in a beetle's hole or even in a sink, which you have too much holy reverence to say yourself and blame the sophists for talking in such a way, no less than in heaven, yet it would be unreasonable to discuss such a subject before the multitude. 
First of all, let them talk thus who can talk thus. We do not here argue concerning what are facts in men, but concerning justice and law. Not that we may live, but that we may live as we ought. Who among us lives and acts rightly? But justice and the doctrine of law are not therefore condemned, but rather they condemn us. You fetch from afar these irrelevant things and scrape together many such from all quarters, because you cannot get over this one point, the prescience of God. And since you cannot overthrow it in any way, you want, in the meantime, to tire out the reader with a multiplicity of empty observation. But of this, no more. Let us return to the point. What then is your intention in observing that there are some things which ought not to be spoken of openly? Do you mean to enumerate the subject of free will among those things? If you do, the whole that I have just said concerning the necessity of knowing what free will is will turn round upon you. Moreover, if so, why do you not keep to your own principles and have nothing to do with your diatribe? But if you do well in discussing free will, why do you speak against such discussion? And if it is a bad subject, why do you make it worse? But if you do not enumerate it among those things, then you leave your subject point, And like an orator of words only, talk about those irrelevant things that have nothing to do with the subject. Section 16. Nor are you right in the use of this example, nor in condemning the discussion of this subject before the multitude as useless, that God is in a beetle's hole and even in a sink. For your thoughts concerning God are too human. I confess indeed that there are certain fantastical preachers who, not from any religion or fear of God, but from a desire of vainglory or from a thirst after some novelty or from impatience of silence, prate and trifle in the lightest manner. But such please neither God nor men, although they assert that God is in the heaven of heavens. But when there are grave and pious preachers who teach in modest, pure, and sound words, they, without any danger, nay, unto much profit, speak on such a subject before the multitude. Is it not the duty of us all to teach that the Son of God was in the womb of the Virgin and proceeded forth from her belly? And in what does the human belly differ from any other unclean place? Who, moreover, may not describe it in filthy and shameless terms? But such persons we justly condemn, because there are numberless pure words in which we speak of that necessary subject, even with decency and grace. The body also of Christ himself was human like ours. Than which body, what is more filthy? But shall we therefore not say what Paul saith, that God dwelt in it bodily? Colossians 2.9 What is more unclean than death? What more horrible than hell? Yet the prophet glorifieth that God was with him in death and left him not in hell. Psalm 16.10 and Psalm 139.8 The pious mind, therefore, is not shocked at hearing that God was in death and in hell, each of which is more horrible and more loathsome than either a hole or a sink. Nay, since the scripture testifies that God is everywhere and fills all things, such a mind not only says that he is in those places, but will of necessity learn and know that he is there. Unless we are to suppose that if I should at any time be taken and cast into a prison or a sink, which has happened to many saints, I could not there call upon God 
or believe that he was present with me until I should come into some ornamented church. If you teach us that, we are thus to trifle concerning God, and if you are thus offended at the places of his essential presence, by and by you will not even allow that he dwells with us in heaven. Whereas the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. 1 Kings 8.27 Or they are not worthy. But as I said before, you, according to your custom, thus maliciously point your sting at our cause, that you may disparage and render it hateful, because you find it stands against you insuperable and invincible. Section 17 In the remaining example concerning confession and satisfaction, it is wonderful to observe with what dexterous prudence you proceed. Throughout the whole, according to your custom, you move along on the tiptoe of caution, lest you should seem neither plainly to condemn my sentiments nor to oppose the tyranny of the popes, a path which you found to be by no means safe. Therefore, throwing off in this matter both God and conscience, for what are these things to Erasmus? What has he to do with them? What profit are they to him? You rush upon the external bugbear and attack the commonalty that they from their depravity abuse the preaching of a free confession and of satisfaction to an occasion of the flesh. But nevertheless, you say, by the necessity of confessing, they are in a measure restrained. Oh, memorable and excellent speech! Is this teaching theology to bind souls by laws and, as Ezekiel saith, 13.18, to hunt them to death which are not bound by God? Why, by this speech you bring us upon the universal tyranny of the laws of the popes as useful and wholesome, because that by them also the depravity of the commonalty is restrained. But I will not inveigh against this place as it deserves. I will descant upon it thus briefly. A good theologian teaches that the commonalty are to be restrained by the external power of the sword where they do evil, as Paul teaches Romans 13, 1-4. But their consciences are not to be fettered by false laws, that they might be tormented with sins where God wills there should be no sins at all. For consciences are bound by the law of God only, so that that intermediate tyranny of popes, which falsely terrifies and murders the souls within, and vainly wearies the bodies without, is to be taken entirely out of the way. Because although it binds to confession and other things outwardly, Yet the mind is not, by these things, restrained, but exasperated the more into the hatred both of God and men. And in vain does it butcher the body by external things, making nothing but hypocrites. So that tyrants with laws of this kind are nothing else but ravening wolves, robbers, and plunderers of souls. And yet you, an excellent counselor of souls, recommend these to us again. That is, you are an advocate for these most barbarous soul murderers who fill the world with hypocrites and with such a blaspheme God and hate Him in their hearts in order that they may restrain them a little from outward sin, as though there were no other way of restraining which makes no hypocrites and is wrought without any destroying of consciences. Section 18. Here you produce similitudes in which you aim at appearing to abound and to use very appropriately. That is, that there are diseases which may be born with less evil than they can be cured, as the leprosy, etc. 
You add, moreover, the example of Paul, who makes a distinction between those things that are lawful and those that are not expedient. It is lawful, you say, to speak the truth, but before everyone, at all times, and in every way, it is not expedient. How copious an order! And yet you understand nothing of what you are saying. In a word, you treat this discussion as though it were some matter between you and me only about the recovering of some money that was at stake or some other trivial thing, the loss of which as being of much less consideration than the general peace of the community ought not so to concern anyone but that he may yield, act, and suffer upon the occasion in any way that may prevent the necessity of the whole world being thrown into a tumult. Wherein you plainly evince that this peace and tranquility of the flesh are with you a matter of far greater consideration than faith, than conscience, than salvation, than the word of God, than the glory of Christ, than God himself. Wherefore, let me tell you this, and I entreat you to let it sink deep into your mind. I am, in this discussion, seeking an object solemn and essential. Nay, such and so great that it ought to be maintained and defended through death itself. And that although the world should not only be thrown into a tumult and set in arms thereby, but even if it should be hurled into chaos and reduced to nothing. If you cannot receive this, or if you are not affected by it, do you mind your own business and allow us to receive it and to be affected by it, to whom it is given of God. For by the grace of God, I am not so great a fool or madman as to have desired to sustain and defend this cause so long with so much fortitude and so much firmness, which you call obstinacy, in the face of so many dangers of my life, so much hatred, so many traps laid for me. In a word, in the face of the fury of men and devils, I have not done this for money, for that I neither have nor desire, nor for vain glory. For that, if I wished, I could not obtain in a world so enraged against me, nor for the life for my body, for that cannot be made sure of for an hour. Do you think, then, that you only have a heart that is moved by these tumults? Yet I am not made of stone, nor was I born from the Marpesian rocks. But since it cannot be otherwise, I choose rather to be battered in temporal tumult, happy in the grace of God, for God's word's sake which is to be maintained with a mind incorrupt and invincible, than to be ground to powder in eternal tumult, under the wrath of God and torments intolerable. May Christ grant what I desire and hope that your heart may not be such, but certainly your words imply that with Epicurus you consider the word of God and a future life to be mere fables. For in your instructions you would have us for the sake of the popes, the heads, and the peace of the community to put off upon an occasion and depart from the all-certain word of God. Whereas if we put off that, we put off God, faith, salvation, and all Christianity together. How far different from this is the instruction of Christ that we should rather despise the whole world. Section 19. But you say these things because you either do not read or do not observe that such is most constantly the case with the word of God, that because of it the world is thrown into tumult. 
and that Christ openly declares, I came not, says he, to send peace but a sword. Matthew 10.34 And in Luke, I came to send fire upon the earth. Luke 12.49 And Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.5 In tumults, etc. And the prophet in the second psalm abundantly testifies the same, declaring that the nations are in tumult, the people roaring, the kings rising up, and the princes conspiring against the Lord and against His Christ. As though he had said, multitude, height, wealth, power, wisdom, righteousness, and whatever is great in the world, sets itself against the word of God. Look into the Acts of the Apostles and see what happened in the world on account of the word of Paul only, to say nothing of the other apostles. How he alone throws both the Gentiles and Jews into commotion, or as the enemies themselves express it, turns the world upside down. Acts 17.6 Under Elijah, the kingdom of Israel was thrown into commotion, as King Ahab complains in 1 Kings 18.17. What tumult was there under the other prophets, while they are all either killed at once or stoned to death, while Israel is taken captive into Assyria and Judah also to Babylon? Was all this peace? The world and its God, 2 Corinthians 4.4, cannot and will not bear the word of the true God. And the true God cannot and will not keep silence. While therefore these two gods are at war with each other, what can there else be in the whole world but tumult? Therefore to wish to silence these tumults is nothing else than to wish to hinder the word of God and to take it out of the way. For the word of God, wherever it comes, comes to change and to renew the world. And even heathen writers testify that changes of things cannot take place without commotion and tumult, nor even without blood. It therefore belongs to Christians to expect and endure these things with a staid mind. As Christ says, When ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be not dismayed, for these things must first come to pass, but the end is not yet. Matthew 24.6 And as to myself, if I did not see these tumults, I should say the word of God was not in the world. But now when I do see them, I rejoice from my heart and fear them not, being surely persuaded that the kingdom of the Pope, with all his followers, will fall to the ground. For it is especially against this, that the word of God, which now runs, is directed. I see indeed, my friend Erasmus, that you complain in many books of these tumults and of the loss of peace and concord, and you attempt in many means whereby to afford a remedy, and as I am inclined to believe, with a good intention. But this gouty foot laughs at your doctoring hands, for here in truth, as you say, you sail against the tide. Nay, you put out fire with straw. Cease from complaining, cease from doctoring. This tumult proceeds and is carried on from above and will not cease until it shall make all the adversaries of the word as the dirt of the streets. Though I am sorry that I find it necessary to teach you so great a theologian these things, like a disciple, when you ought to be a teacher of others. Your excellent sentiment, then, that some diseases may be born with less evil than they can be cured, applies here which sentiment you do not appositely use. Rather, call these tumults 
commotions, perturbations, seditions, discords, wars, and all other things of the same kind with which the world is shaken and tossed to and fro on account of the word of God, the diseases, these things, I say, as they are temporal, are born with less evil than inveterate and evil habits by which all souls must be destroyed if they be not changed by the word of God, which being taken away, eternal good, God, Christ, and the Spirit must be taken away with it. But how much better is it to lose the whole world than to lose God, the creator of the world, who can create innumerable worlds again and is better than infinite worlds? For what are temporal things when compared with eternal this leprosy of temporal things, therefore, is rather to be born than that every soul should be destroyed and eternally damned and the world kept in peace and preserved from these tumults by their blood and perdition. Whereas one soul cannot be redeemed with the price of the whole world. You certainly have command of elegant and excellent similitudes and sentiments. But when you are engaged in sacred discussions, you apply them childishly, nay, pervertedly. For you crawl upon the ground and enter in thought into nothing above what is human. Whereas those things which God works are neither puerile, civil, nor human, but divine. And they exceed human capacity. Thus, you do not see that these tumults and divisions increase throughout the world according to the counsel and by the operation of God. And therefore you fear lest heaven should tumble about our ears. But I, by the grace of God, see these things clearly, because I see other tumults greater than these that will arise in the age to come, in comparison of which these appear but as the whispering of a breath of air or the murmuring of a gentle brook. This concludes our reading of Part 1 of The Bondage of the Will by Martin Luther. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com or by phone at 780-450-3700. 30 or by fax at 7804681096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton Alberta Canada T6L3T5 If you do not have a web connection please request a free printed catalog If you do not have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add, that's add, at swrb.com or simply swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, of course, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and texts, etc. 
SWRB makes available on the web as well as at times our best discounts and super specials. We also want to encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends. But we only authorize this as long as the full contents of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. We want to thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading. And remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you.